Good morning, everyone. Might I just say, I was so encouraged by hearing not just the music ministry team up here, but hearing the voices of all those who are standing behind me proclaiming the grace of God that he indeed is merciful. Amen? I'd like to ask that you please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. As you turn there, I want to share with you a little tidbit from American history. In the early stages of the United States, one of the biggest problems that our nation faced was piracy. Now, for the millennials in the room, I'm not talking about music or movies, uh, but the good old-fashioned blackbeard kind of piracy. It became such a problem that America built a navy to defend itself against all of those pirates. And as a deterrent, as a punishment to convince people that this is a bad way to go about your life, that this is not a good form of, uh, of wealth management, they decided to begin hanging pirates. And so in America, if you were found to be a pirate, you were condemned to be hung by the ne neck until dead. Now, many pirates died that way. However, there were two brothers named Jean and Pierre Lafitte who were pardoned by our fourth president, James Madison. I don't know everything about James Madison, but according to the Animaniacs, I learned when I was eight years old that James Madison never had a son, but he fought the War of 1812, and I've never forgotten that. Jean Lafitte went on to become a very important figure in American history. Uh, he was involved in the Mexican-American War that resulted in our country owning Texas. He also fought alongside of President Andrew Jackson at the Battle of New Orleans before Andrew Jackson became president. Jean Lafitte became a very well-known figure. Uh, so much so that to this day, if you go to Disney World, they actually have a large monument dedicated to him made in the image of an anchor. And if you go on the ride called the Pirates of the Caribbean, they in fact have his name plastered on at least three locations in that ride. In fact, if you grew up in the 1960s and 70s, you might have seen something very similar to this because there were cartoons not of Jean Lafitte, but of Jean Lafoot. You see... Quaker Oats was looking for a mascot for Cap'n Crunch, and so they decided to imitate this individual. So if you've ever gone to the grocery store and walked down the aisle, the cereal aisle, you will have seen an image, a cartoon-style image, of this man, Jean Lafitte. That Cap'n is Cap'n Crunch, or Jean Lafoot. Now, we're currently in the middle of a series about the doctrines of grace. When we consider this question about pardon, it is substantial for what we are looking at today. The question you need to ask yourself is, was it fair that Jean Lafitte was pardoned? As we continue to make our way through the doctrines of grace, uh, we are going to be learning today about that doctrine called unconditional election. Two weeks ago, we began by searching the scriptures to see that God does whatever he wants. Because, as we said, our God is in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases. Amen. His Sovereignty reigns over not only his creation, but also over the wills of those that he creates. He is sovereign over everything, including salvation. And last week, we considered the doctrine of total depravity. Depravity means that every part of us, our heart, soul, mind, strength, and will, are all sold under sin. And the worst part about our depravity is that nobody will ever voluntarily choose to come to the Lord because no one will ever desire to do so. Can anyone come to the Lord that wants to? Yes. Will anyone desire to apart from the work of the Lord? No. We are blind to the beauty of Christ. We are slaves to our sin. And we are uh, dead in our trespasses. 
Due to the condition of depravity, there will never be a person who comes to God without God working in them first. So, as Jesus put it, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Today, we are going to continue in our understanding of salvation by considering that it is God who chooses to regenerate and to give the gifts of faith and repentance. Today, we consider unconditional election. Please join me as we pray and ask the Lord for his help to understand, believe, and apply what he has for us in the word this morning. Our God and Father in heaven, uh, we thank you, Lord, that you have provided for us in your word the knowledge of who you are and how you operate. I thank you, Lord, that you have not left us to our own devices to figure out the philosophies of this world, but you have provided for us in the scripture information that is helpful to us to know exactly what you do for us in salvation. And today, Lord, I pray that as we consider this doctrine of unconditional election, that you would help us to know you and to see your love at work in your electing of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I have often said, one of the best ways to grow in our understanding of the word is by querying the text. That just means asking a lot of questions. Today, that's what we're going to do once again. We just ask the Bible questions. Today, we're going to ask 10 questions from the Bible about the nature and function of election. Hopefully, this will clear up confusion or misunderstanding regarding this aspect of our salvation. The first question is very simply, what is the doctrine of election? Well, the Bible speaks about God's purpose in working out all things in multiple ways. We're going to consider three of them for a moment. First, the Bible uses the term ordination, that God ordains things. God ordains particular things that will take place. Consider that what was going on behind the scenes in 2 Chronicles chapter 2. Uh, Here we see an event that God has set into motion that he guarantees will take place. It says in verse 7, But it was ordained by God that the downfall of Ahaziah would come about through his going to visit Joram. Why did that happen? Why did he die on this trip? Because God had ordained it. And God ordains everything that happens. Or as the Westminster Confession puts it, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. What did God ordain whatsoever comes to pass? So God's ordaining work is a reference to the fact that he covers everything that occurs in the entire timeline of human history and human future. But there is another word that kind of zooms in a little bit. Ordination is about all things that take place. But if we zoom into the just human events, we see another term that is used about God's orchestrating work. And that is the word predestination. Predestination is more narrowly used than the word ordained. Ordination is the most broad term that covers everything. Predestination refers specifically to deeds, desires, and destinies of people. We see a prime example of this in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 through 28. It says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What does this mean? Well, according to this verse, God had predestined that Herod and Pilate would become friends and that they would oppose Jesus. They, uh, God had predestined that the Gentiles and the Jews would work together to crucify Jesus. He did not force them to do anything. 
He allowed them to do exactly what they wanted to do. But in a mysterious way, every single move that they made on the chessboard was following the exact steps that God had predestined them to make. So God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. He predestines the deeds, the desires, and the destinies of people. But then if we narrow the focus of the lens even tighter, we will find one more word that the Bible uses to define his work in orchestrating salvation. That word is election. Election simply means that God chooses who will be saved. This is why the people of God are often called the elect 19 times in the New Testament. Every person who is elected by God will be in heaven, and only those who are elect of God will be in heaven. We see a good example of election being paralleled with God's work of justification in what James read so well for us this morning from Romans chapter 8, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Mark 13, 27 speaks of God's final act of mercy on his people at the return, stating, And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Who will he collect? Who is going to heaven? It is those who are of the elect. Now, sometimes in the Bible, you will see a verse like this one, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, that we're about to read, and you will see a specific word that you need to understand what is being stated behind the word. Colossians 3, 12 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Now, in our English Bibles, the translators have chosen to use the word chosen ones. But the Greek word here is something that might sound familiar to you. It is the Greek word elekton, which literally means elect ones. It is identical to the words we are seeing in other locations where we read the word elect. But are the translators wrong to use the term ones? Absolutely not. They're not wrong because that's exactly what it means. It means that God has chosen them. Election means that God has, from eternity past, selected some people to receive the gift of salvation. So that begs the question, exactly how do we know when this took place? When did God elect people to salvation? That's our second question today. And this is important because it helps us to understand that God is not reactionary. What we're going to do right now is we are going to give a peek into the distant past. And by distant past, I don't mean the ancient world. I don't mean the time of the Egyptians. I don't mean the time of Adam. I mean before creation itself. How can we know what happened before anything existed? Well, the modern world believes that the only way to know anything is through the scientific method. Well, we have a greater way of knowing, and that is we have revelation from God himself, the one who was present, who tells us exactly what took place before he created everything. God has graciously told us what happens. He says in Ephesians 1, 3 through 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world. His choosing, electing process occurred before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. God's work of election occurred prior to your birth, prior to the fall, prior to sin entering the world, prior to the existence of angels and demons, prior to Satan himself, it happened before creation began. The third question we'll consider today is, is election biblical? Well, of all the questions that we will ask today, this is the most important, 
And it's also actually the easiest one to answer. In fact, you, you should be able to answer this question with nothing more than the scripture we've already examined. And that is that every true Christian believes in election because every true Christian believes in the Bible. The Bible teaches election, and it teaches that it is the manner in which God chooses his people. So yes, Christians agree that election is biblical. However, not all Christians agree about how the process of election works. There are two distinct beliefs regarding how God chooses his people. The two different positions are called conditional election and unconditional election. This sets up a, us up nicely here for our fourth question, which is, what is the difference between conditional election and unconditional election? Well, if you're a parent, then you are very familiar with the idea of conditional answers. Uh, here's how things usually work when I get ready to leave our house. As I am making my way out the door, one or more of my children will begin begging me to go with me, regardless of where I am going or what I am doing. And I love that they love to go places with me, and I love to take them places with me. But there are times when I am leaving, and one of my children, for example, my son Asaph that you just saw bring me a nice uh, thing of water here. Sometimes Asaph will ask me to go, and I will respond with a statement like, is your room clean? In saying that, in asking that question, I'm giving him a condition. That condition must be fulfilled in order for him to have the right to join me. He knows that his responsibility is to keep his room clean, and he knows that if it is not clean, then he is no longer permitted to join me in my adventuring around Levittown. There are other times, however, when one of my children will ask to do something, and I give no condition. Daddy, can I go with you? Come on, let's go. And I just take them with me without condition. That is called unconditional the Arminian position argues that God's electing work is conditional. They believe that when God elected people to salvation in eternity past, he did so by looking down through the corridors of time in order to see exactly what that person would do and how they would respond to the gospel. From their perspective, God looked favorably upon everyone that he knew would choose him. So, since he knew that they would choose him, they then, he then chose to elect them. I know they will choose me, therefore I will choose them. Let's just consider two historical uh, individuals, twin brothers, Jacob and Esau. The Arminian position of conditional election teaches that God chose Jacob because he knew that one day Jacob would stop lying, that he would stop scheming, that he would stop stealing, and that he would trust in the Lord. And he did not choose Esau because he knew that Esau would never bow his heart to the Lord. That is the Arminian position. The Calvinist position, or the position of this church, is the exact opposite. The doctrine of unconditional election holds that God chose us based upon nothing except the good pleasure of his will. So if you're paying close attention, you will see that the main debate about election really isn't about election at all. The main debate is about what caused God to choose or elect certain people. Or to put it more clearly, the debate is really about the foreknowledge of God. Let's examine that further with our fifth question. What does the Bible mean when it speaks about foreknowledge? One of the most famous verses in the Bible is Romans chapter 8, verse 28. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I am sure you know that verse and have heard that verse so many times. And praise God for that. 
But do you know what it says directly after? This is important because this is what is called a grounding verse. It begins with the word for or the word because. The reason that Romans 8.28 is true is because verses 29 and 30 are true. And it continues and says, For or because those whom he foreknew. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he has called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, theologians call this the golden chain of redemption, and we're going to consider it much more thoroughly in a couple of weeks. But for today, we're just focusing on the beginning of that chain. Notice that the people that God predestined to salvation were predestined based upon his foreknowledge. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And just as we saw, those who believe in conditional election means, to, this means to them that God saw how people would respond to the gospel. They believe that God foreknew your disposition towards him, and because God foreknew, or in other words, foresaw what you would do, you fulfilled the criteria to be saved. Is your room clean? Yes, then you can come with me. Do you respond favorably to the gospel? Yes, then you are elect. That is the Arminian perspective. However, that is not what this word foreknew means at all. Notice two very important things about this foreknowledge. First, according to this passage, God's work of predestination was not based upon what God foreknew. It was based upon who God foreknew. That is a major difference. Look closely at that wording again in your own Bibles. Make sure I'm not making this up. Make sure you see this clearly. Those whom he foreknew. It's not talking about specific details. It's speaking about individuals. In other words, this verse is claiming that God observed specific people and he chose them based upon knowing them. Well, is this, question, or is this claiming then that there are some people that God did not know beforehand? The answer is yes, but not that the, he did not know about them. It's that he did not know them. For many people, this is confusing, and it causes us to scratch our head and ask the question, didn't God know everyone that would be born before they were born? And the answer is obviously yes. So then what does it mean that God only knew some people? Well, the answer to this is very simple, but once you see it, you cannot unsee it. And the answer is that the word knowledge in the Bible does not mean awareness or intelligence. That's not how the scripture uses the term. In the Bible, the word know means intimacy or love. When my mentor Ed Moore showed this to me, it helped me make the Bible make so much more sense. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Genesis chapter 4 verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Knowledge in the Bible is a way of speaking of intimacy or love. In this case, the kind of love that produces offspring. Adam knew Eve, and it produced a child. Amos chapter 3, verse 2 says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Well, that begs the question, did God not know about the Perizzites and the Jebusites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Ammonites? Was God completely ignorant about the Egyptians and the Philistines and the Babylonians and the Greeks and the Romans? Well, obviously he knew about them. It's not that he was unaware of them, that he didn't have an intelligence about them. 
The fact is that it's speaking here about how God knew the Jews, meaning that he set his affection upon them. We see this really clearly in places like Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, where it says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has done what for you? He has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now, nobody seems to have a problem that God chose just this one nation to have this kind of relationship with. In the Old Covenant, that's how God operates. In the New Covenant, that is how God operates. Continuing on, it says, It was not because you were more in number than any of the people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why does he do it? It tells you very clearly because he chose you and loved you. Why did he choose you? Because, verse 8, it is because the Lord loves you that he has chosen you. Why does he do this? It's because of love. According to this passage, God did not choose the Jews because of who they were, nor did he choose them because of what they had done. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, you would never think to yourself, well, this is a prized possession, yet God looks at them and he says, this is my prized possession of my choosing. I have selected you, not because of what you have done or who you are, but because I have chosen to love you. In the New Covenant, we see that the people of God that have been set apart for salvation have been set apart because God foreknew them, meaning that he foreloved them. The Arminian position says he foresaw. The Calvinist position says that he foreloved these people. And that is cause for his predestining, electing work in salvation. Let's just sample a few other places where we see this concept clearly stated and examine which of these two positions they support. Consider John 15, 16. Jesus said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. From the disciples' perspective, I mean, just if you're just reading from their perspective in the Bible, from their perspective, does it look like they chose Jesus? Well, yes. When Jesus comes to them and says, follow me, it looks like they chose to drop their nets and follow them. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they left a fishing empire behind them. Or Matthew, who is also known as Levi, when Jesus comes to him at the tax booth and says, follow me, Peter leaves the most, or, uh, sorry, Matthew leaves the most lucrative job you could have in those days, and he drops everything at the tax booth, and he follows Jesus. Why? From Matthew's perspective, from the disciples' perspective, because I chose to follow you. Yet when we get to the Last Supper, Jesus says to them, you did not choose me. Why does he tell them this? I think it's because they had the misconstrued conception that they, in fact, did. And he says, actually, if you want to understand how things really worked behind the scenes, I chose you. Now, you might say, if you were contrary to my position here, you might say, well, that was just the disciples. Or maybe even you would bring the circle a little smaller and say, that's just because they were the apostles. And God doesn't do that for everyone, but he did it for them. Or maybe you would say, this is only speaking about bearing fruit. Well, if you say that, it's important for you to understand they can't bear fruit unless they are of the right kind of tree. So in other words, they would have to have something prior to that, meaning if he chose them to produce good fruit, he also chose them to be saved. That's important. But also, it's important to see that this is not only exclusive to the disciples. It's not only exclusive to the apostles. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, brothers beloved by the Lord. Why? Because God chose you as the first fruits 
to be saved. Did God choose the, Thess- the, Th- the Thessalonians to be saved? Try saying that too fast. Did he choose them? According to Paul, yes. His electing love actually specifically selected these people for salvation. So let me ask the question, what does this look like in regular life? How does this actually play itself out in terms of practical evangelism and conversion? Let me explain it this way. A few years ago, I was over in Massapequa, and I got a phone call from my children's dentist. And the receptionist told me that I had an appointment at my children's dentist. And I began asking, very confused, I don't understand. You know, I'm not a patient there. I have never been there. I have not even taken my children there. My wife has done that for me. They were kind of a new dentist to us. And I said, I I want to know who made this appointment for tomorrow. And the woman, confused on the other end of the phone, said, well, you did, of course. Now, I forget things sometimes, but I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that I did not schedule an appointment with them, nor had I ever communicated with them in any way at any time ever in the history of the world. I did not schedule that appointment, but there was an appointment that existed for me at that dentist. I still don't know who made the appointment. Did you know that when people respond to the gospel, they respond to the gospel because there has been an appointment made for them to do so? There are some who are appointed to eternal life, and they are the ones who will believe the gospel and be saved. Acts chapter 13 verse 48 says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. That's what you want to see when you preach the gospel. They hear the gospel and they respond favorably. Why did this happen? And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Who was it that actually trusted Christ? Who was it that rejoiced and believed the gospel? As many as were appointed to eternal life. To argue that God chose us because he knew that we would choose him is basically to argue that God loved us because he knew that we would love him first. It would mean that God is a reactionary God. It would mean that God does not do what he does based on his own pleasure or will. He does so based upon ours. And the Bible reverses that order. It teaches us that our love for God is born not out of our own natural desire. It is born out of his initial love for us. Consider 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is love, that he is the one who initiates. And then if you jump down to verse 19 of the same chapter, Paul, or John adds, we love, why? Because he first loved us. Our love for God and our love for others is a reaction to God's initiating love for us. So let's answer the question about what the Bible means when it speaks about foreknowledge. When the Bible says that God foreknew particular people, it means that God has chosen before time began to set his affection upon those people apart from any influence of their future actions. But this leads to a very obvious question, our sixth question of the day. Upon what criteria did God determine who to elect unto salvation? I mean, if God gets to decide and he chooses some people and not others, then how did he choose those people? What is his criteria? Now, we've already spent a little bit of time in Ephesians chapter 1 today, but let's once again pull back and peek our nose behind the curtain of eternity and look back to eternity past at the council of the Trinity and see what they were doing before time began. Now, as a side note, I will tell you, 
that when you get to the end of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5, it is quite literally the worst verse division in the Bibles. In the Bible. Remember that the words in your Bible are inspired by God. The numbers were put there much later by other individuals. The chapter and verse divisions are not inspired. And this is the worst one, and I can't comprehend why they did this. But the last two words of verse 4 say, in love. It's a new sentence. In love, comma. That's the end of verse 4. And then he begins verse 5. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Wow. Let's begin by seeing here that what he is speaking about is done in love. His predestining work is done because he has graciously set his affection on you. And in love he predestined us for this adoption. This is the second closest that we ever get in the Bible to being told outright why God chooses certain people. Do you see the answer? It's up there in two places in that verse. We see, first of all, the first reason is he does this according to the purpose of his will. That's just a very fancy Pauline way of saying, because he wants to. Secondly, to the praise of his glory is grace. In other words, because by choosing these people, he knows that it will bring him maximum glory. There's only one place in the Bible that makes this more clear. Hopefully you still have your finger in Romans chapter 9. If you have it there, please turn there for me now. I want you to see this in your own Bible. And I want you to see it in your own Bible because I cannot tell you how many people that I have spoken to about this who have said to me something to the extent of, I have never seen this in the Scripture before. I had no idea that this was in my Bible. How in the world has this been here the whole time and I never knew about it? I want you to be familiar with this page in your Bible so that you know that I am not creating or fabricating any doctrine here. This is what the Scripture says. We're going to begin in verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue... Not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Now according to this verse, why did God choose to love Jacob and hate Esau? These two boys, twins, shared a womb. They were womb mates together. These were twins. Yet before they had done anything, they had never performed any actions. No moral deeds of good or evil. Even then, God had already chosen one and not the other. As we learned earlier, the Arminian perspective claims that God made this choice based upon the fact that he knew what Jacob and Esau would do. But Romans chapter 9 refutes that entirely by stating that this choice was, quote, not because of works, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It's not based upon their actions or future actions. It's based upon the will of the one who makes the call. Then why did God choose one and not the other? According to this verse, so that his purpose in election might stand. Which brings us to our seventh question. Is election fair? Jean Lafitte was a pirate. Jean Lafitte was a smuggler. Jean Lafitte got wealthy based off the pillaging and stealing and murdering of other people. He was condemned. He was guilty. However, James Madison pardoned him and his brother. Yet there were many, many, many pirates 
who were hanged by the neck until dead. Was that fair? Was it fair that James Madison chose to show mercy to those two men and not the others? Absolutely not. It is not fair. Election is not fair. And here's the important thing for you to understand. Guilty people never want fairness. They ask for mercy. If you get pulled over speeding, you do not say to the police officer, please just do what is fair. You ask for mercy. If you get caught smuggling or pirating, you do not ask for fairness. Please, President Madison, please just give me what is fair. No, you don't ask for that because then you will be hanging with all of those other men. You don't ask for fairness, you ask for mercy. And much more so, to the extreme degree, if you are caught before the God of the universe breaking his commands and rebelling against him, you do not ask for fairness. You ask for mercy. Because fairness would mean that everyone goes to hell. You see, even though the Bible does not use the word fairness, there is something very similar, the old-fashioned way of speaking about it, that Paul does employ. Paul knew that this is exactly what people would be thinking. He knew that if you are responding right now with that feeling, I don't understand why God has the right to choose some and not others, because to me it seems unfair. The Bible uses the term unjust, and Paul knows that you're going to ask this question, and he actually preempts it, and he, example, or he, he answers it for you. Continue looking at Romans 9. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice, or we could say unfairness, on God's part? And his answer, by no means. And if you have an English Bible, there is an exclamation point there because this is stated in the most emphatic way possible in Greek grammar. Absolutely not, by no means, can we say that God is unjust or unfair. Why? For he says, verse 15, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. This is a pretty simple argument. God has the right to show mercy or compassion to whoever he wants. He is not obligated to show mercy to everyone. He has the freedom to choose if he wants to have compassion on some and not on others. He has that right to choose. So what role does man have in this process? Well, verse 16 informs us, So then it... It, speaking about salvation, it, meaning our salvation, depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, just in case we're not getting it yet, Paul includes for us the object lesson from the Old Testament in verse 17. He says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Notice what the scriptures are saying. Pharaoh was not chosen to receive mercy. Pharaoh is currently the judgment, experiencing the judgment for his sin. He is going to forever experience the wrath of God in hell. And why is that? Well, here it states very clearly this is because he is in that category of those that are not of the elect or those who do not receive mercy. Nobody could ever claim ever claim that the mercy of God is equally available to all people because it clearly states here that God did not equally give that opportunity of mercy to Pharaoh. God did not show his mercy to Pharaoh. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And the point that Paul is making here is that God had every right to do so. That's why he reiterates it in verse 18 by saying, So then he, God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So you might say, well, this is not true for everyone. It's just true for Pharaoh. 
Well, according to Paul, this is true of whomever God wills, which naturally leads us to our eighth question of the day. If God elects some but not others, how can we still condemn those who are not of the elect? In other words, if somebody does not choose God, can't we just say it's because God did not choose them first and therefore shift blame onto God and therefore say it's not their fault for not coming, it is your fault, God? Well, once again, Paul knew this is exactly what people would be asking, and he puts it this way in verse 19. Will you, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Follow the argument that Paul is anticipating. Someone might argue that if man cannot come to God on his own, if, if God must intervene through election, and if God chooses not to elect someone, how can that individual who is not elect still be found guilty for not coming to Christ? Well, the Holy Spirit is really gracious to tell us the answer. He instructs us about this. He doesn't leave it vague. He doesn't leave it out in the ether. He comes straight forward and tells us the answer. He could have left it a mystery, but he knows that this would be difficult and would be confusing to us. So through Paul, the Holy Spirit answers us in verse 20 this way. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of one lump, one, uh, the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Now, I hope you see what God is doing in this response. I hope that you can see through my inability to read my notes well, and you can see through what is actually being stated here. If anyone is asking whether or not God has the right to do whatever he wants to do with his creation, it means that they have dangerously inflated their view of man and horrifyingly deflated their view of God. In these verses, God is reminding us that he can do whatever he wants. If he chooses to create some people for salvation and others for destruction, that is his free choice to make. And anyone who would argue would simply hear the voice of the Spirit asking, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? God is sovereign. He is sovereign over salvation, and he has the right to choose his people. Which leads us now to the ninth question. Well, if this is true, then how can we know who are the elect? Well, the simple answer to that is, you don't. It's not our place to make guesses about who God will and will not save. That you proclaim the gospel universally to all people, and those who are appointed to eternal life will hear and respond and believe. God's sovereign choice in salvation is not based upon anything other than the good pleasure of his will. Therefore, you cannot look at any identifying markers and say, this person is a candidate for salvation. You cannot say, this person is closer to the kingdom because he is more like me or because he is more moral outwardly. In fact, many of the people that God chooses to save are the last people on earth that we would suspect. And that is to the praise of his glory. So we do not look and see who we think might be a good candidate for salvation. We do not guess at who might be of the elect. However, after someone comes to Christ, there are visible results of transformation that give evidence that someone knows the Lord, that they are of the elect. If you want to know more about this, just keep coming because we are going to cover in much greater detail in a couple of weeks what this looks like. But this brings us now to our final question. Does believing in election hinder 
missions and evangelism. Now, this might seem like a left field question, but the reason I bring this up is because this is the number one complaint against this teaching. There are even people that have said to me, one individual in particular stated to me, now listen, even if that's true, and he conceded, and it might be true what you believe, but how could you possibly say that to people knowing that if they think there are a bunch of saved elect people out there and that God is going to work his work of regeneration in their hearts, then why would they go out and share the gospel? Doesn't this hinder evangelism? That to be honest, is the exact opposite of what the Scripture teaches us. No, believing in election does not hinder missions or evangelism in any way. Now, the pragmatic way for me to explain this or or defend this would be to line up a bunch of people on both sides of the aisle and say, okay, well, on this side we have Charles Spurgeon, and then over here we have Billy Graham, and then on this side of the belief we have George Whitfield, and over here we have John Wesley, and we just kind of see which one of them have the greater body of evangelistic work. Well, to be honest, if we were to do that, the Calvinistic side would win out. However, that's not the way that we determine truth. If you remember back to a previous sermon, we do not determine truth based upon history or tradition or by seeking similar people that we like or by results. We build our theology out of Scripture. So what does the Bible say about this belief, the understanding of election, and how it causes us to think about missions and evangelism? Let's consider the most evangelistic Christian who ever lived, Paul the Apostle. Consider what motivated him to endure all of the trials and suffering that he experienced. Consider what propelled him to go forth and proclaim the gospel, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8-10. through 10. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering. Here Paul is imprisoned, and he explains that he is suffering by being bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound, he says in verse 9. Now, what about all of this suffering that he experiences? He says, therefore, I endure everything. Why? Why do you go through this, Paul? Why do you keep preaching the gospel? Why do you keep getting beaten and shipwrecked and imprisoned? Why do you do that? I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Now, you, if you stopped the sentence there and did not continue... It would be easy for you to say, well, this just means he's talking about those people who have already come into the kingdom. He's talking about those people who are saved. And if you said that, you would be well within your rights because there are many times that Paul speaks of saved communities. He speaks of churches by referring to them as the elect. However, that is not where Paul stops the sentence. There is a comma, and he continues, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. In other words, these are not yet Christians. These people are not yet saved. He wants to continue so that all of the elect of God who have not yet come into the kingdom will hear and believe. It does not hinder his evangelistic spirit. It promotes it. It propels it. It pushes it forward. He endured all things for the sake of the elect. Likewise, we should be just as motivated to take part in the ingathering of God's people. Do you want to have a lot of joy as a Christian? Well, one of the ways that we have that is by seeing the fruit that God brings people in through the foolishness of our message. Look, you're not a perfect messenger, and neither am I. There's only one of those, and that's Jesus. But thankfully, he says, I want you to be involved in this process of bringing people in, so go and tell, be my ambassador, and that it is Christ who does the work. We just plant the seeds. He grows the tree. I realize that this is a difficult doctrine for many people to understand or swallow, 
And I also realize that this has been a long sermon with many challenging concepts. So please know that I plan to remain up here at the front after the service concludes, and I will answer as many questions as you have. But just remember, if I know for certain that I'm going to be answering your question in a week or two or three, I might just say, thank you for asking. Would you be willing to please hold off on that question because you're just a little ahead of me, and we're going to get there very quickly. So let me finish out this sermon by pointing to one final truth. Earlier I noted that there's an incredibly weird verse division in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. But I want you to consider that. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. And those two words, those dangling words at the end of verse 4, circle them, underline them, highlight them, do whatever you can so that whenever you come to that page of your Bible, you see them. Because in all of the doctrine that we have considered, if you miss these two words, you miss the point of election entirely. Why did he do this? In love, he predestined to salvation. In love, he predestined his people. Not because of what you did or will do, not because of your potential, not because of success or failure, not because of anything other than God desired to set his affection upon you. He chose to love you. That should fill you with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Let's pray. Our Father God, I pray that, Lord, if there is anyone in this room that is not yet in the kingdom, I pray, Lord, that you would draw them. I pray, Lord, that they would come to you not asking if they are of the elect, but asking whether or not they have trusted in Christ and bowed the knee to him for the forgiveness of their sins. And Lord, I pray that if there is any unsaved person in this room, that you would indeed use this to redeem them. What a joy that would be. And Father, I also pray that for those who do know you, that understanding this doctrine of election will help us to understand you and to also be humbled before you, that we see your love for us, to see that our salvation is not our own doing, but to see that from beginning to end, it's your grace. I pray that we would know this, trust this, and believe this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.